Welcome to a very special presentation of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. I'm your host, Eric Payne. Saturday, June 13th was a long day and it had culminated a long week. A week that I'm glad it's behind me. I spent most of that week arguing with people, arguing with family members, arguing with parents at my daughter's school. What we were arguing about is honestly in the in the annals of time. What we were arguing about was silly. It won't matter in the long run. But the fact is, is that I was exhausted and I also argued with my daughter because, you know, she's a teenager and she's finding her way. And sometimes I don't have the patience for it. Real talk as a man, as a father, as a father raising my daughter um, pretty much by myself. My, my, my ex is in the picture. But when it comes to those tactical on the moment responses that I need, probably from a woman in dealing with my child, I don't have them. And, you know, me pulling from my trick of parent tricks there they fall flat sometimes with my teenage beautiful outspoken amazing daughter i mean translation i'm not a woman so some of the stuff i just don't get but back to saturday i was truly looking forward to eating a burger unwinding and putting a very stressful argument filled week behind me instead i wound up eating way past the time I should have and my stomach ended up being in knots and I'm tired a few blocks from my home Rayshard Brooks was shot and killed the night before I did my best to avoid the video when he came up during my church's men's group zoom call on Saturday morning I tried my best to hear without absorbing the details only to find out that this man did something hilarious he passed out at the drive-thru at Wendy's and I mean, that's the stuff of every frat boy movie. He did something that may land him in jail for the night to dry out and would probably be a story for him to share at barbecues with his boys, with his kids when they became drinking age, whatever. Just like I can tell story after story after story of picking up frat brothers scattered across Cornell University, drunk as a skunk, passed out, in the bushes, face first in the front lawn of our house. We just took care of our guys. Sometimes it got a little extra where someone might have been pulled over or something. But again, they spent the night in the pokey. They dried out. But I'm looking back on things and I'm realizing that we were just lucky. I don't think it was because of the time. I think it was just because we were lucky. I mean, me, me myself, my senior year, I was so drunk one of my last days of school that my jeans ripped in the back in the morning. I was drunk in the morning. The next day when I came to, 
I don't know what happened for 24 hours. The entire seat of my jeans was gone. Thank God my drawers were showing. I mean, my drawers were still there. But I lived to tell about it. Later on that week, I saw women and they were laughing at me. So I know something happened. I don't know what happened, but I know something happened. But I lived to tell about it. I was 21 at the time. I learned from my mistakes. I lived to tell the tale. But it appears that I was lucky. I knew I was lucky then and I know I was lucky now. The mistakes we make in this life are there for us to learn and grow from them. But what happens if you're never given the opportunity to grow so you can learn? Rashard will never tell his story. He will never have the opportunity to learn from his mistake. Imagine being drunk, disoriented, and adrenaline jacked because you and the world knows that depending on the skin you're in, if you resist arrest, you could die. If you don't resist arrest, you could die. When you do die because you done got killed, you get dragged in the media and the court of public opinion posthumously for things that don't have anything to do why within that moment you were shot dead or choked dead. Things that other people get slaps on the wrist for and get to tell their employees at work. I've heard so many stories about things from bosses and managers and I've said to myself, man, I'd get kicked out of school for this. Man, I'd go to jail or worse for this. But they're just laughing about it. Slaps on the wrist. Probation. Whatever. This man, Rashad, snatched a taser and ran away. And they knew it was a taser. I don't know the protocols of how what it takes to disarm someone. But I know an untrained man with a taser is probably not going to fare as well as a number of trained officers who are trained in de-escalating and disarming individuals. The autopsy report came out and it's shown that he was shot in the back. So, doesn't seem like they, he was posing much of a threat anyway. Saturday night, a friend from Cali called to tell me that the Wendy's where he fell asleep was on fire and burning down. Her voice was weak. It almost sounded like she was in tears. She wasn't upset about the insured building as so many people are upset that this building, these savages, it's so inappropriate. Were. She confessed that just everything in the last couple of weeks just feels hopeless and that's when for me my banged up armor cracked open and fell off i turned on the news to watch non-stop coverage of a burning building a thing that can be replaced employees can be reassigned and again insurance covers everything especially when it's a crime and i'm not you know i worked in insurance so i know this stuff i'm not willing to debate the nuances the dollar amounts but it loss is built into billion dollar companies line items. Whether I agree with the fire or not, it doesn't even matter because this is what does matter. The fire that is burning everywhere right now was not set by any of these people. They are merely the flame. And I'm going to let you think about that for a minute. There were two helicopters overhead. And all of a sudden, after that call from my friend from Cali, I was suddenly aware that they were swirling. I knew they were there, but I was ignoring them. But now I knew why they were there. And they stayed there until dawn. The sky was dark, but it was starting to turn gray with smoke. I mean, I'm not that close, but it's air, right? And air travels. Around midnight, I went outside and talked to one of my neighbors who was walking his dog. And I told him I appreciated him. 
We traded stories about what we did when we got drunk and how we lived to talk about it. And I encouraged him to the point of almost begging him to stay safe. I asked my God to save us all. I asked my God to help protect my kids. And the worst thought I've had in a very, very long time popped into my head. What if my kids come out of this fatherless? What if they come out of this without their dad? What are they going to do? The thought paralyzed me for a while. My wisdom is it, running out as the pain compounds. I woke up on Sunday, but I didn't get out of bed for hours because I didn't want to move. I didn't want to leave my house. I still don't want to leave my house, whether I have to or not. And the saddest part of all of it is that I can't feel a thing. I haven't been able to feel a thing for years. But I can tell you this much. My numbness is my pain. And I'm tired. If I was white, I wonder. If I was white, I wonder, would you stare at me so coldly with your eyes so blue? I wonder. As I walk to my apartment, would you look at me in bewilderment when I pull out my keys to go inside, the building that I've been living in longer than you? Yeah, I remember seeing you when you moved in. I wasn't dressed up that day. You probably didn't notice me. Probably just thought I was delivering groceries or something like that. I wonder. Would you always bring up basketball to break the ice when you first see me? Would you try to remember some Ebonic slang you heard one day on some hip-hop song or TV? And then repeat it back to me wrong as some kind of proof you're down? Would you not even bother to consider that maybe, just maybe, I don't talk like that? Even though, of course, we all do, and proceed to insult me with your callous ignorance, would you look at me as the exception because I have more education than you, and then fear me for my accomplishments behind closed doors? And because I'm not loud or happy-go-lucky, would you consider me angry and call me ungrateful for some something, whatever it is, that you in this society think you afforded me? That was rightfully mine since birth and before even then. Would you think that because I speak quietly with my brother in the office, I was starting to C-O-N-spiracy? That's conspiracy. And would you label me a jerk? I wonder. Would I be so concerned with the common good? Would I advocate animal rights over human ones? Would I have even been remotely worried about living a C-21? Would I know word for word, songs that glorify guns? Now that 21 is coming past, would I still have to shoot for 40 thanks to AIDS? Would I have a name besides he, him, and that one? Would I begin my misunderstanding with those people? Would I learn the facts before I decide to hate? Would I be able to strike fear in your heart with a simple glance? Would I always have the best seat in the house or the bus or the restaurant or whatever? Because you'd sit anywhere before you had to sit next to me. 
I wonder. When I walk down the block a whole block behind you, would you turn and look, clutch your purse tightly, and walk faster assuming I was a common crook with nothing better to do than to mess with you? Would you have your far off fantasies about me being some kind of mandingo sex machine with a fearsome magical dingaling? Would you want to get with me just because? For love? Or just to see if that rumor was true? I don't know. Tell me. Would you? I wonder. If I was white, I wonder. Would a million thoughts and fears wrap them into one ball of confusion, bouncing up and down in your mind, causing you to react, to choose what you always do, looking at me with that blank stare, as if I'm not even there? Or would you smile and say hello? I wonder. I didn't write that poem in response to anything that's currently going on. I wrote that poem when I was 26 years old. 27, I'm not sure. One of those years. But I definitely, no, it wasn't 27. I wrote that, that poem somewhere between the ages of 24 and 26. And it still applies. Now, I am not painting with a broad brush all people of Caucasian descent. I'm not. I wrote this poem back at that age. 20 some odd years, 24 years, 23 years later. It still applies. And I'm not speaking, like I said, with a broad brush. I'm speaking about my experiences. So this isn't one of those things where someone I'm encouraging or even welcoming someone to say, well, I experienced discrimination too. I'm sure you do. You're a human being. And you can express that on your platform. But I would appreciate it, you know, if you don't attempt to try to diminish my experience, by telling me that you've gone through it, gone through something more than likely dissimilar to. We all have our things. This is my thing. And this is something that people that look like me, men, black men, black men who aren't criminals, because most of us aren't. I mean, if you do sample sizes and you look at the prison system, which is literally a business and opted to not inform yourself, then I guess you would feel that black men are dangerous in all forms and fashions. But honestly, more than not, I'm just trying to have some coffee, avoid eating donuts because I love eating coffee. I mean, I love eating donuts with coffee, being a good dad to my daughter and my son, making some money and having a good time. I like to laugh. I like to watch TV. I watch anime. I watch action movies. I daydream about being a superhero at 48 years old. I'm still trying to figure out how to fly and crawl up walls. That's what I do. I'm not out here trying to rob and steal and burn and kick and maim and steal women's purses and deflower uh, frail white women. And I'm saying frail not to dis white women. I'm saying that's actually a stereotype. You have to watch the original Birth of a Nation to understand what I'm talking about. The, the one that was produced post-Civil War uh, that was a piece of propaganda to basically scare the bejesus out of white folks and prevent Reconstruction from being what it actually could have been. But yeah, I'm a man. I'm a son. I'm a God-fearing man. I'm a decent neighbor. I'm a voter. I'm a taxpayer. And I'm a father. 
since I ended the last segment on fatherhood, and since Father's Day is only a couple days away, I put the call out there to see who would respond to the question, what does fatherhood mean to me? Why is fatherhood special? These are some of the responses I got back. First up, we have Ross Knight, a friend, a photographer. He's a lifestyle photographer. He's a travel photographer. He's a wedding photographer. He photographed my wedding. Most of the pictures that I have on Instagram were taken by him. He's also currently the director of photography at Syracuse University. And these are his thoughts on fatherhood. The beauty of fatherhood has been watching my daughters grow as they teach me more about life through their eyes, questions, tears, and laughter. I have two daughters and it is the best thing that has ever happened to me to be a father and learn so much from them. They are two of the most beautiful creations I've ever seen in life. And before being a father, I didn't know what being selfless really was. Scott Zobish is a firefighter for the city of East Point and the city of Decatur. He's a father. He's a very involved father. In fact, he and I first met in elementary school. I mean, not our elementary school, our children's elementary school, where we both chaperoned a trip uh, to, I think it was a pumpkin patch. And interestingly enough, for that trip, almost all the chaperones were fathers. I think there was one mother, but everybody else was a dad. And I remember when we used to see each other in the hallway, he'd be like, hey, dad. Hey, what's going on, dad? I'd be like, hey, dad. Kind of like when you walk dogs, you are known by the dog you own and not who you actually are. But eventually we made it to first name basis. So here's Scott's thoughts on fatherhood. Why being a dad, more specifically a black father, is something I've never had to put into words. Being a father is a job and a reward at the same time. And masculine male representation in a child's life is invaluable. Every day as a father, not only am I dispelling the myth that the black father is non-existent, I'm also ensuring that the next generation is stronger and better prepared in this unsettling world. Above all, my role is to show my wife, my kids, and all that I come in contact with, love and compassion. I do this by uplifting and protecting black women and supporting other black men. Um, you know, no one loves harder than a black man. Wayne Ewan is a buddy of mine. We used to go to school together. He reached out with his thoughts on fatherhood. He is the regional sales manager at T. Rowe Price covering the Southeast Territory. He's, he's a father to some big ones, and he also has some very, very little ones. So my hat is off to him. The question was asked, what does fatherhood mean to me? And I'd have to say the best thing about being a dad is the pride that I feel in seeing uh, my children be successful and achieve uh, their goals, wishes, dreams. Um, I enjoy being a dad. Clearly, I have four kids ranging from the oldest being 20, the youngest is one. Um, I enjoy teaching, I enjoy coaching, I enjoy mentoring, I enjoy uh, protecting, I enjoy uh, being seen as a leader. Um, and I would say that this time that we're living in 
is um, probably more meaningful with regard to those roles and those hats we wear as, as dads um, to protect, to model, um, to support, to coach, to teach, um, and to be a friend and to have them as, as uh, our friends, as dads. Um, it is a uh, trying time on, on many fronts. And I would say that uh, being a dad in this period is something that I would never want to change. Um, it is very meaningful. Um, being a dad has helped me to grow and evolve. It's definitely shaped who I am over these 20 years of, of being a dad. It's helped me to become a better person, um, uh, hopefully a better father, uh, hopefully a better friend, um, and just a better man in general. It's something I would never change. The purpose of this was not to say that, oh, look at us black men, we're good fathers too. I don't have to prove that. The data suggests that. Pew Research says that black men, upon being divorced, move maybe a block or two from their original house so that they can still be involved in their children's lives. Um, there was a study that came out recently that said black fathers in the home or not do their children's hair, get them ready for school, cook for them at a level that is higher than fathers across the board. This isn't about proving anything. This is just about giving a voice, letting it be heard, saying, here we are. Not, ooh, look at me, ooh, look at me, I am too. But just, I've been here, man, and this is what I do. And we do this thanklessly. We do this in silence. We do it and don't expect anything in return because, I mean, at the end of the day, we're just trying to groom lives for the future. The reward in that comes with that child making a difference in the world. The reward in that comes with that child looking back on their lives and saying, I did a thing. And if we get some thanks along the way, I mean, it's cool. But nobody's looking for it. Nobody's looking for accolades. Nobody's looking for hand claps. But we are here. And we do have truths. And they matter. They matter. You know, I don't know who's listening to this show. I, I mean, I do demographically wise and, you know, data wise. I don't have names or anything like that. But. I am clothed in black skin. It is something that I cannot take off. My reality has been one of, although I've experienced racism, my day-to-day -day is just as regular and normal as anybody else's. There's no violent crime. There's, there's, there's no thievery. There is no up-to-no-goodness. Those are false narratives. Always have been. We've always known that. The, uh, the amount of brutality that has been enacted against us. Well, I mean, when you over police a particular area, of course, you're going to find crime. When you are driven by quotas, of course, you're going to get your tickets because your quota of arrests and all the rest of that has everything to do with your pay. No different than sales. I mean, and it's really that simple. So you over police one area and you don't another. Well, of course, the area that's not over police doesn't think that there's anything wrong because there's nobody policing them or very few people policing them or rather they get called out when things are happening whereas the other police are just there 
looking for stuff. And I'm not trying to upset anybody. I'm not trying to put anybody off. I am just celebrating the skin I'm in and the skin that people that look like me are in. So happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth. I hope at some point we get this we get this together. I do. I hope at some point we can all come together. I'm not looking for and when I say come together, I don't mean approval. I want equality. I want equity. But I'm not seeking approval because I already know my value. And I'm not really too concerned about being judged either, because, again, I know my value. And the thing is, is that the world is waking up to realize that a lot of people knew their value and were never seeking the approval. And that seeing so many people express proudly that they're black and they're proud and that black lives matter beyond like just simply existing and that you know they're frolicious and all the rest of that understanding that their value is not derived on being accepted by the status quo that is a beautiful thing and that's something that everybody should have every ethnicity you're not here for the approval of others you're just here so make it work and be great Thank you for listening. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric L. Payne. Please follow me over at YouTube at Eric Payne. You type in YouTube, put a slash and type E-R-I-C-P-A-Y-N-E. And you can follow all the links there for my products and services if you're interested. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Please share if you think someone can benefit from the show. And we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode with my dating shenanigans the next time. Thank you for listening to the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. Thank you for allowing me to have this platform to share some of my feelings about who I am. With that said and done, be well, be at peace, and love one another. Not kumbaya love one another, but the interest and the happiness of others in the forefront of your mind. Empathize with the plight of others. Understand that people are just trying to be people just like you. And that goes for everybody. Until the next time, this is Eric Payne, host of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. Thank you.